Hey everybody, this is Alana with the Dealing with Donor Conception podcast, and today I do not have an interviewee for you, although I love the the last interviews that I've been able to snag for you guys. I, I really recommend listening. We've got Anna Saucier, who did a phenomenal job talking about overcoming infertility with NFP, and natural family planning, and NAPRO technology. Then we had Dr. Craig Trzinski, um, who is a former IVF doctor who now uh, teaches natural family planning and promotes that. And then we had Dr. Patrick Lee, who's a bioethics professor, come and talk about body self-dualism and the philosophy behind um, reproductive technologies and certain mindsets that we get into. And I'm so proud of our interviewees, but there's actually been a lot of um, anonymous uh, contributors to to the work that I've been able to participate in over the last 10 years. I started the Anonymous Us Project in 2011, so not quite 10 years, but uh, I, I set up shop with anonymousus.org, and I'm so thankful for the generosity of Institute for American Values and the Kiara Skuro Foundation, who helped me build the website. We started off with just a trickle-in of, of stories from anonymous authors. So I, I wanted to invite donor-conceived people like me to come in and write about their journeys and write about their, their thoughts and their, just their particular stories related to, to their donor conception identity. But I also wanted to invite parents, you know, people who were struggling with infertility who either chose or were thinking about choosing donor sperm or eggs or surrogacy, I also have invited adoptees to come in and write about their stories. And I did invite fertility industry professionals to write their stories, but I think I only got like one in the last, you know, eight, nine years. So now we've got a collection of, I haven't counted exactly, but there's probably near a thousand stories on the website. And a few years ago, I, I read through all of them and picked um, the, the, what I felt were the most well-written, not necessarily, uh, I agree with them, but they just did a really great job on their writing in their, um, presentation of, you know, verbiage and descriptor, descriptive language and characters. And so I have a best of document that people get when they, um, sign up for the newsletter. And I'm just going to write, or not right, I'm going to read to you some of these stories, some of these best of stories that that came to anonymousus.org in the last uh, eight years. So the first one I'm going to read to you is called Jaws of Life. And it goes, when I was 21, I found out my biological father was a vial of frozen sperm labeled C-11. Finding out so late was a huge shock. With my childhood already behind me, the neural connections identifying my dad as my dad were cemented. Emotionally, I could never think of him as anything other than my dad, and I still don't. Yet suddenly I was told we were genetic strangers. My identity had been splintered, and the social and biological aspects of parenthood carved up. In the place where I inherited half my genes, all I could see was a vial of semen in cold storage. I mourned the human face behind that vial, somebody I had never and would never meet. 
It was a little bit like a mother might mourn the baby she could never have, I suppose. I wonder what it would feel like to have been told earlier. Another donor-conceived man I met has always known his origins. Initially, he accepted it. He even considered becoming a donor himself. On the day his daughter was born, as a father, he glimpsed the power of the biological link and what the loss of his paternal kin meant for him and for his daughter. I suppose the point I'm making is that children do not have a static response to being donor-conceived. It changes throughout their lives. I couldn't relate to my own story. I, I'm a human being, yet I was conceived with a technique that had its origins in animal husbandry. Worst of all, farmers kept better records of their cattle's genealogy than assisted reproductive clinics had kept for the donor-conceived people of my era. It also made me feel strange to think that my genes were spliced together from two people who were never in love, never danced together, had never even met one another. My reaction was never to blame my parents. I wasn't angry with them. In some ways, I felt like my mother was a victim of telling me the truth, that she needed me to comfort her and tell her that it was okay, that I didn't need to know who my donor was. I struggled to find the words to express my thoughts, the questions that I dared not ask or even form in my head because they seemed like a betrayal of my loyalty to my family and to society. At the time, these thoughts were incoherent, but I believe they basically boiled down to this. How could my parents decide to deliberately separate me from my kin so that I grew up half-blinded to my own identity? If they couldn't face telling me the truth about what they had done, well, why did they do it? How could the doctors sworn, sworn to first do no harm create the system where I now face the pain and loss of my own identity and heritage? How could the government, charged with protecting the most vulnerable members of the community, its children, legislate to make it illegal for me to know the identity of my biological father? How can its institutions subject me to this psychological torture of knowing that records exist, but that I am forbidden to know the contents? How could my donor help create me and then abandon me without even leaving his name? The best I have come up with to answer these questions is my parents were focused on the immediacy of their own infertility and would have done almost anything to relieve their suffering and get a baby. The doctors were focused on publishing their next scientific journal paper and were surrounded by images of smiling, happy babies on their clinic walls. They didn't think about the future when these babies would grow up. The government found it messy and awkward to legislate in this area, and there were no votes in it. My donor was young and focused on doing a good deed, and he believed the clinics, which told him that the biological link can be extinguished by signing a contract. For three years, I hardly talked about these confusing thoughts with anybody. Our family continued pretty much as it had been before. I reached a turning point when I met another donor-conceived woman. It was a huge relief to talk to people with a similar background who shared my view that donor-conceived people have a basic right to information about their genetic identity. These people helped me articulate the things that were bothering me, and I bonded with an adopted woman who had seen it all before with the adoption debate 
and eventual reforms. Being donor-conceived is like being half-adopted, but with the added strangeness of being raised by a blend of both the adopted and the birth family. I became driven by a sense of injustice. I had two newspaper articles published and learned the power of personal stories. I stood up in a seminar and asked the Attorney General what he was doing for donor-conceived people. I faked confidence. I convinced a lawyer to engage me pro bono. I met politicians deep in the bowels of Parliament House and traded on my personal story to try to pierce their rhinoceros thick skin. When the question of unsealing all donor conception records was put to a vote, the amendment was defeated by a measly five votes. Five strangers had decided that my fate was to have my questions go unanswered forever. Or had they? I got in touch with my mother's treating doctor and asked him to send a letter to my donor on my behalf, asking his consent to an exchange of information and or contact. The doctor was a highly decorated expert in donor conception, and I was the first donor-conceived person he had ever met. Three agonizing months later, he emailed me to say that he had done it. After this, things moved really quickly. The very next week, I received a call with big news. Firstly, I didn't need to ever again refer to my biological father as my donor. His name is David. After exchanging letters and talking on the phone, we arranged to meet. The day before, I discovered I would be meeting his children, my half-siblings. I was nervous, especially the night before and the day of the meeting. As I approached the gate, David's son called out to me in an excited voice and ran to greet me. Immediately, I felt more at ease. I said hello to everyone, and we sat down to lunch. I had a surreal moment as I looked around and realized that I was surrounded by people who all looked like me. The clinics were wrong. We are family, at least in some sense of the word. Finally, I understand why people comment that my sister looks Swedish and why I'm interested in flying in space. David and I share an interest in reading, art, sports, napping, nature, and the outdoors. After all my efforts in the media, law, and political lobbying, I was pleased to discover that my paternal grandfather was a notorious agitator of the establishment. A few weeks later, I met David's eldest daughter. She gave me a card that read, Dear Rebecca, what a wonderful surprise it was to learn about your presence. One can never have enough family. Lots of love. XOXO. For me, the hardest things about being donor-conceived was the powerlessness and lack of choice. Being constantly reminded that I must abide by decisions made long ago. Hang on a minute. I never agreed to any of this. The other hard thing was seeing how society had accepted and valued the biological link in endorsing my mother's need to have a child she was biologically related to, but had rejected, sometimes ridiculed, and at the very least constantly required me to justify why I needed to mend the broken ties of my biological link to David and his family. The next story that I want to read to you guys is from an egg donor. Uh, Anonymous Us has stories from a lot of different kinds of people, not just donor can see people from donor sperm. We've got egg donors, we've got sperm donors that write in, we've got parents, we've got children born via surrogacy. There's a lot of diversity. And 
And egg donation has become a more and more popular route for people who, um, you know, a lot of women, they were on the pill for a very long time and then reached 35, 40, finally got married. And then in later in age, later in their lives are trying to have kids and they realize they can't. So there's a lot of marketing done to college campuses, girls with a lot of student loan debt um, to try to access their eggs. And this, this particular story um, I thought was a very well written. I want to share it with you. It's called egg donor regret and what I did not know at the time, what I didn't know at the time. She starts, this is likely going to be a book, as once I start writing, it will probably all come out. I've been holding a lot of this inside, as it's very hard for me to confront and admit how my thinking on my egg donations has changed so drastically over the past five years. In my mid-twenties, after recently gotten married, I started to feel the urge to have children. Yet I knew that my new husband and I were not ready yet financially. So I began looking into egg donation. It sounded like such an amazing thing to help out other couples and to give of myself in such a way. I took a lot of time to research egg donation and to really make sure it was something that I was prepared to do. I also wanted to make sure that my husband was fully on board. It took a little while to be submitted and accepted into a couple egg donor agencies and then wait to be matched as an unproven donor. But when I was finally matched at age 27, I was ecstatic and so excited to be doing something so significant with my life. I ended up doing three back-to-back egg donations at age 27. Though it's something that I wouldn't have admitted at the time because it sounds so harsh, even though it's largely true, that year my greatest worth was as an egg factory. I learned about RES4 and egg donor IVF protocols quickly. I learned all about my different hormone levels and what different numbers meant. So when I was stimmed to the point where my estradiol levels got to a dangerous 12,000, I was aware that a woman in a normal IVF cycle would never be allowed to get her levels this high or her cycle would be canceled for fear of extreme ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. However, I was not a normal woman going through her own IVF. I was not the one paying for the drugs being put into my body. I could afford to suffer OHSS if I developed it. After all, I was just the donor. I was not going to have to transfer embryos back and possibly get pregnant and risk worse ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. I was just a donor. But I was okay with this. Because again, I was so excited to have the chance to help another couple conceive. At the time, I didn't care what my body went through. I produced 50 eggs that cycle. The next cycle, I produced 65. The third cycle, with a different doctor who finally lowered my dosages, I produced a slightly more normal, though still high, number of 34. Then I decided I was ready to get pregnant with my own children. My husband and I tried for a while and found out we had some male infertility problems. We were told that we we would need IVF to get pregnant. I independently matched with a couple online who was interested in splitting a cycle with me where I'd get half my eggs for my own IVF instead of any monetary compensation. As I was also desperate for my own child and would do anything to get it, I agreed to the split cycle with the couple. However, the doctor advised us against the split cycle, and being indecisive, confused, and exhausted, 
and since I'd already somewhat committed to the couple, I decided to do one last egg donation for them. I was 29 at the time. We worked with a doctor in Las Vegas at a well-known fertility clinic there. I was treated horribly, unprofessionally, and negligently, and I hope that this doctor does not get away with something like this again with someone less educated about the process who cannot stand up for herself. Everything was fine until the very end of the stimulation meds. At an appointment, he said that he wanted me to trigger my ovulation that evening, but I very politely pointed out my follicle sizes and estradiol levels and mentioned that with my previous three cycles, I had waited one extra day before triggering with excellent results. He immediately dismissed my concerns and said that he wanted to do it his way. I was taken aback by this, as this was my fourth donation cycle, and I was very familiar with how my body responded to the drugs, and shocked that a doctor would not listen to his patient, especially a patient like myself, who was rather educated on the process. Because it was an independent match, I was able to contact my recipient parents and express my concerns. She was also concerned, and as the paying party who had a much larger say in things than I, she tried numerous times to contact the doctor directly to ask about me waiting an extra day to trigger. The doctor ignored her and flat out refused to call her back. The recipient and I had a very difficult time trying to decide what to do, but at the very last minute we decided to follow doctor's orders even though we didn't agree with them. And I did my trigger shot, though it was about 20 minutes late. While a late trigger shot may be a slight inconvenience and might delay the retrieval surgery process by 10 to 15 minutes, it's not something that would be detrimental to the donation process. I knew this. My recipient knew this. And anyone who's ever done an egg donation or IVF and who understands how it all works knows this. First thing, the next morning, the doctor himself called me and told me that because I had refused to follow orders, my cycle was being canceled and he was refusing to do my retrieval. I assured him that I had in fact done the trigger shot. He could bring me in for blood work to prove this if he wanted to, but he continued to claim that because I had failed to follow orders, he was canceling my cycle. I informed him that he was leaving me in a very medically precarious situation as once the trigger is done and without a retrieval surgery, I was getting ready to ovulate 25 to 30 plus eggs all at once. And he said that I should have thought about that before I refused to follow orders. Furiously, I started making phone calls, and I thankfully was able to find a reproductive endocrinologist who had worked with me in the past and was willing to take me on at the last second and still do a retrieval on me. The recipient couple did end up getting pregnant, but unfortunately miscarried at eight weeks. After this horrible experience with donation number four, I knew that I would never do another donation again. While I knew that I previously was just being used for my eggs, I had been able to accept it before. But after donation number four, and knowing that I still had not yet provided my own husband with a child, and had instead shared my fertility with other couples to have families and biological offspring that I'd never get to meet, it began to really affect me. My supportive husband said that he was okay with how things had turned out in life, but even still, it bothered me. One of the reasons I married him is because I wanted him, my husband, to be the father of my kids. I've never even shared the marriage act with anyone else other than him, yet I completely and willingly allowed my genes to be mixed with a stranger and for someone else to be the father 
of my biological offspring. It just hit me very hard, and I didn't know how to handle these new regretful feelings about my donations. When I originally did them, I honestly and completely did them with sincerity, and I fully thought that I was doing the right thing. All throughout my donations, I was told that what I was doing was so noble, and I believed that. I went through a psychological evaluation before being able to donate and was cleared for being in the right mindset to donate. I must have given all the right answers because at the time, those were all the right answers that I had read and been led to believe were my own as well. It's very difficult for me to now admit that I regret doing my donations. I regret that I have biological offspring with men that I don't know, that I have children out there whom I don't know, and I can't say that I regret having created lives because, I mean, how could anyone say that? But I, I don't regret that, but I do regret how it happened. I have my own daughter now. After donation number four, my husband had found another doctor who was able to treat an underlying issue that he was facing so that we could conceive without IVF. So now that my husband and I have our own child, I also regret my donations because I forced my daughter to have half-siblings that she'll never meet or know. When doing the donations, I never thought about this part, about how I would explain my donations to any future children that I might have. I just didn't think about it. I was living in the excitement of the now and the flurry of shots and doctor's appointments and of feeling significant. I didn't fully think of the long-term complications this would cause. I know that at least I have five biological offspring out there somewhere, possibly more if any of the couples chose to do sibling cycles afterwards. While right now they're all under five years old, I know that someday they're going to learn the truth of their creation and they're going to wonder who I am. I wish I could reach out to them and explain who I am and why I did what I did. I do hope that someday in the future, some of them reach out to me so that we both may be able to fully come to terms with this unique biological lineage that I was not aware of when I created. So that was from an egg donor who regrets her donations. Thank you guys for listening. These stories have, um, they were submitted anonymously to anonymousus.org, which is the story collective website that I created in 2011. And the tagline is anonymity and donor conception hides the truth, but anonymity and storytelling can help reveal it. And that's exactly my goal, um, for, for the website. My goal is not to indoctrinate or share my opinion. I just want to create a platform for people to get the full truth because when you go to the IVF clinic or when you go to a fertility clinic, they're only going to sell you their, their service. They're going to tell you everything's okay with donor conception. It's great. It's fine. Now give us your money and we'll make you happy. That's what they do. I, um, don't make money through this site. I've never made money through the site. I, uh, I'm not a wealthy person because of what I do. This is just a passion project of mine, and I want to share these stories so that pe- people can do their due diligence and make the right decisions for them and their family. Because if you're going to create a child through donor conception, um, you're free to do that. The services are available, but I want you to know what you're getting into and the kind of emotions that your child will experience later in life, and that as your their parent. Um, it's 
something you got to deal with, you know? And I also want to introduce people to other alternatives like macro technology and natural family planning and things that might be more successful for them. So you should know in the dating and marriage market or the family building marketplace, you should be aware of all your options so that you can make the best choice for you. And for the donor conceived people that are listening, I want you to know that you're not alone and that there's places where you can share your voice and you're not going to be ridiculed and you're not going to be alone because, uh, I know for me, I've gone through a whole range of emotions from being completely gung-ho about donor conception. I even sold my own eggs when I was like 19, 20. Um, now I regret that myself. That wasn't my story, by the way, but but now I'm doing this. So you can see how your feelings can change over time. And so you just know that you're welcome to change your mind and and it's not your existence that's the problem. For me, it's not my existence that's the problem. It's certain aspects of the process. And what kind of world are we building when we do this? And so I hope that you join us for next week's episode. Um, I hope to bring in more stories from anonymousus.org and mix it in with more interviews. I love doing the interviews. Um, thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, bless you. We'll see you next week. <laughs>